Hi, and welcome to a small, medium at large podcast. I'm your host, Gail Heisen, bringing you intimate stories that heal. Today, before I talk about our guest and share her bio with you, I want to mention that I watched a wonderful film last night called Temple um, Grandin, and it's the story of an incredibly amazing woman with autism who was able to do amazing things in her life for helping animals and others. And it was a very moving and very beautiful film. So I just want to mention that to the listeners that if you have not seen that, I highly recommend it. So let me begin with telling you a little bit about our guest today. Henny Cooperstein is a psychologist with a specialization on autism research. Dr. Cooperstein is trained in music therapy, is an autistic autism researcher. She is a parent of autistic children and a piano pedagogy scientist. Henny's research interests include perfect pitch, sensory integration, and autism. She is classically trained in piano, voice, and guitar. Henny also enjoys African drumming, klezmer music, free improvisation, and composing. Her current work focuses on advocacy, research, and scholarship. Please contact Hen Henny about sensory and education, consulting, piano lessons, and composing opportunities of the contacts you'll find on the description at the end of the show. Her book, Perfect Pitch in the Key of Autism, is a guide for educators, parents, and the musically gifted, which is co-authored with Susan Ranser. She writes, autism and perfect pitch are the reasons why my nonverbal autistic clients make glorious piano music when taught in the classical tradition. She uses a scientifically based method for teaching autistic students with perfect pitch. In their research, they found a near 100% correlation between autism and perfect pitch. So let's welcome Henny here today. Hi, Henny. It's a pleasure to have you. Oh, thank you. That was quite interesting to hear how the internet profiles me. Um, <laughs> it's a good use of AI. Yes. <laughs> so I have a Lots of questions. I always start with my guests with the beginning, when you were a child or your family life, because we find that I've learned so many different things about things that have happened in the childhood that's led the person to do some of the things they do today. But first I thought what's most important for our audience to know is, can you explain what autism and autism spectrum means? So a spectrum basically is like you're in a sound studio and you have these different switches that you can you can move up the dials, move down the dials. And when an autistic person is being evaluated, they're being evaluated for each of those markers and then getting a score based on how severe uh, it impairs them. And then you draw like through the scatter plot, you do a bar graph. And then if overall, all of that meets the cutoff of autism, right? Here on the side, it says autism below, not above on the spectrum. So 
we don't necessarily any longer subscribe to functional labels like severely low functioning or oh you present to so high functioning clearly you don't have autism um what we want is a more current definition of autism which is based on the neurodiversity movement it's based on people who have a set of commonalities that are phenomenologically significant enough to uh support their quest for tribalism or wanting to be only with people like them because in the human race what we have in common one autistic from the other is what comprises a society we have a shared language we understand mm -hmm. each other we uh we have a sacred text like the dsm that tells us what we how defective we are uh, <laughs> or maladaptive and then we also have common interests so we share dank memes and we all enjoy it we have the same kind of humor so it's very cultural and if I send you a meme that has been made by an autistic person you may or may not enjoy it you may take offense or you might just be laughing so hard and sharing it with all your spectrum friends mm -hmm. so that's autism I think it's a group of people who have a lot of similarities and get along fine until they have to socially encounter a demand to be different for the sake of a job. I the reason I one of the reasons I'm asking is that I have never been around people that I know that are autistic. They may be autistic, but I don't know this. But we recently had a diagnosis of the first time ever in our family with an autistic child. And the situation is confusing for the parents. They're just learning about the situation and he's only eight years old. But his thing is that he won't speak in school or in places or, and he likes to, since COVID, once he put a mask on, he's never wanted to take it off for all these years now. And um, he has started doing some responding with like a little sign but as soon as he gets in his home, he talks a mile a minute, doesn't stop talking. And once when his mom left him with me, I was very nervous because I knew he wouldn't respond every time I spoke to him. So I said, do you want something to eat or what can I do? And you feel sort of hopeless, like how can I help? And I don't know for what reason why he talked a mile a minute that day. It only happened once. So that was why I was asking you about spectrum because it seems that there's really different levels where children aren't speaking at all, or there's a child like this who's speaking some of the time. I think he experiences anxiety going out in public or being with people. And that might be something similar like what I've seen in some autistic people, like eye contact or physical contact is not really welcomed. Yeah, it's he's showing signs of adapting to social injury that may have been chronic from school, from teachers who expect him to perform in a certain way. And it may be one of the first signs of PTSD from the therapies that are forced upon the family after a newly, di a newly diagnosed child uh, will have their parents uh, assaulted by what the professionals and experts are telling them to do. But none of that is accurate or relevant to what the autistic people want that's what she's experiencing and she doesn't and i said to her i want you to read this book i think i'm just i just there's something about my show that it just has its own life yep and all of a sudden autism came in and 
I have a family member I want to help. And here's all of a sudden all these avenues coming to me of information to share with them. So I just want to say how grateful I am that Stanley Krippner suggested that we meet and have a show together. Yeah, well, he's a legend. And I uh, specifically fled Harvard to follow him across from the East Coast. I finally fled to California and I said, oh, I'm not going to do this. I just came out of a cult. I'm not going to go into another cult called the Ivy <laughs> League. I'm not going to do it. And I fled. I got into a taxi after six hours and I did not look back. On the front cover of the book, there is an endorsement by Temple Grandin. Yes, I have it right here. And for people like of my generation, first first generation diagnosed uh, autistic based on the Asperger's criteria. Before 2013, we were called Aspies. And then in 2013, we all became autistic. <laughs> <laughs> so from the first generation mentors was pretty much Temple Grandin was the only openly autistic female who pursued higher education and then came me. Because in between that, there were no other females, uh, and there was only Stephen Shore, who was faculty at Adelphi University, and he got his doctorate in uh, special education. So there was this gap, because Temple's interests was in animal husbandry, animal behavior, the psychology of, you know, stress in its primal form in a very easily observable way, like cows. And my interest was, can I be the first openly autistic person to pursue a degree in professional research so that I can do autism research from the perspective that we want to be seen as in the literature? That's, that's fabulous. Yeah, I met my goals. That it's, it's very exciting. So yeah. growing up, what was this like in your family? Were you having, did you have speech issues or was, how was it recognized in your family and how did your family, like in Temple's life, her mother was the most supportive, wonderful person that did not accept the doctor's advice to go put her into an institution in 1951. So, uh, I, I, you know, I'm thinking of all these brilliant people that must be institutionalized because they didn't figure out how to take care of them correctly. And I'm wondering, what did your family have to go through? So my family uh, came to the U.S. as refugees after World War II. Oh. And I was raised by uh, people who became ultra-Orthodox Hasidic in the heart of New York City. And because they mourned their lifestyle from the shtetl before the ghettos, they forced us the next generation to stay within the boundaries that they have created for a new world and it isolated us so significantly that i did not know um that i was an american citizen i didn't know i had a social security number i didn't know my civil rights my human rights and without education and without access i was just groomed for marriage and child rearing so that happened when i was 18 I went straight from, you know, uh, high school, which was just, you know, a gathering of girls learning about, you know, home economics from, you know, teachers who were not licensed educators, but everything was in the name of God. So you were supposed to be subservient. Uh, your husband is only as successful as you are when you feed him. 
and you care for him. And I was 18 when I was forced into an arranged religious marriage with a stranger. And so that's happened to me and half a million New dollars. In, in New York City. Right under the nose. And um, when I, uh, you know, you know, had babies every year as as was the custom. Uh, I didn't know really anything about like the birds and the bees. And I just thought that I was super pious and that's why God was listening to my requests for a child in my prayers. And I was handed these gifts. Um, so I always felt privileged. I always felt um, like I, I, I'm following all the rules and it's panning out. I've invested in the brownie point system of communal living. I was always the one who was generous to go and help others who just had a baby. Like I'll take in their 18 month old for two weeks and, you know, give the mother some lunches and suppers and whatever she needs. And that was, that was the community lifestyle. I excelled in it. So what did my parents say when I wasn't speaking by age five? Slap in the face, talk, talk, or you're not going to get what you want. So Temple Grandin describes being a child. They didn't know any better. It wasn't. They did not know better. I mean, but that's, that's like forgiveness is sort of like a Christian value. And I wasn't raised to say, you know, forgive them for they did not know better. Um, I struggled in therapy many, many years because the therapist, the Anglos tried to tell me that you know, I grew up in a very traumatizing circumstance, but I think that's just projection. I think mm -hmm. that all of the values that I was raised with, especially uh, being self-sufficient by the time I was age five, because another baby was born, so there was no coddling. Um, I made my bed. I had to strip it when I was bedwetting. I just had to put it in the washing machine. Those, those were rules, and and you couldn't not like I had never had a thought of rebelling against the rules. Um, as an autistic person, I abided by them because it gave me form and a structure. Mm -hmm. um, by the time I was a married mom, I was feeling very, very, like my self-esteem was pretty high. I was very confident. My house was running, you know, with military ordinance and kids always looked gorgeous. And, uh, you know, I nurtured their talents and I exposed them to like... Curious George books and <laughs> little golden books and uh, oh, were those oh, not allowed in the Hasidic? Oh no, English oh, language. really? Yeah, anything in English was forbidden. So, you know, obviously, I didn't bring the one into my home that was a really funny uh, uh, book of Curious George goes to the TV station because it has the word TV and that definitely you don't want that in your house oh yeah so the internet is forbidden still um so yeah i mean i was five and that's when i started forcibly vocalizing but i didn't really understand communication between age eight and 11 i started learning how people use vocalization to manipulate each other and then I had to reconcile with that awareness and I had to say, oh my, okay, so I have this dangerous weapon. It's a noise hole in the center of my face and I could either use it to, you know, be sassy or uh, make jokes so that people laugh at me rather than at me. And, you know, a class act was born. <laughs> well, I, I've, 
I'm thinking about there's something about the strictness and rigidness that might have actually helped you to be more successful. And the fact that nobody gave you any type of diagnosis, period, right? You didn't see a doctor. There was no information. So your parents weren't led to feel bad like Temple's mother when they told her, oh, it wasn't because you bonded when she was born and you didn't do this right or that right. They didn't hear any of that kind of information. My ignorant parents gave me all that information as I was growing up. They called me the R word, um, which I use freely now just to liberate myself, because if it was used against me, why can't I use it to talk about my past? Mm -hmm. You know, um, they uh, I, I got beaten at mealtimes, uh, things like that. Eat, eat, because in Auschwitz, we would have killed for that. So we're sparing your life by smacking you. Um, swallow, don't gag eat the chicken. Okay, you're gagging. Now we're going to punish you for gagging and vomiting and making mommy have to clean up your puke. Yeah. So on the top of all of that, I mean, the the spectrum definitely comes from my father's side and my grandfather. You know, we're very good storytellers of people who have that inheritance in my very large family. My grandfather wrote a book about uh, his Holocaust experience and some of the grandchildren translated the Yiddish book into English and it's on Amazon. <laughs> he doesn't know he passed away. So, I mean, now he just can enjoy. I mean, if I want to like do some Holocaust literacy, I can just read on, you know, my, a couple of pages and people can learn that these stories I grew up with, these stories, I, I have come to believe that they were true. And mainly I have come to the conclusion that I identify as a victim of Hitler because I was raised by, this, by the, the consequences of World War II. Whatever PTSD your parents were experiencing was being transferred to you as a baby, as a child, subconsciously, not even necessarily consciously, but both. Obviously, if they were telling you about Auschwitz and food, you heard it from both ways. But I think that there's also the trauma of just being that child of those parents that have had- I grew up intimately aware that I was spared execution and that there's no guarantee that if I veer from my best behavior that I would be spared. So, uh, my so heart I grew up the survivor <laughs> I. I wanted to ask you another question about this with children. I only have like five or six questions here, but I I just, as I said to you, this whole thing about autism has just been presented in my life and these odd things have come. And in that I received a phone call uh, by way of a friend of mine who suggested this gentleman call me and his name is um, Scott, uh, Scott Steindorf. And he's just finished a documentary interviewing autistic families and autistic people around the world. And the documentary is going to come out this year and he's really pleased with all the work that he's done. And I, I know he's really excited about this being released for other people. He also is autistic and just announced it, I think this last year about his film to Hollywood so that they, he's come out to let them know that as a filmmaker, he's a very successful filmmaker, that not only is he autistic, but he raised three autistic children to successful careers. 
And I'm reading that you also have autistic children. And I'm wondering if we didn't recognize, my grandparents all came in through Ellis Island also. I'm a second generation American, you're a first generation. But I'm wondering whether some of the crazy behavior that I know about from relatives in the past, was there autism, like for it to all of a sudden pop up in one of the children in our family when nothing has ever been said, and he's saying how he has this autism, his children have this, you have this, your children have had this. Is this a genetic uh, situation? And can you speak a little bit about that? It's 100% inherited. And it's not something that you can test for in utero. And it's just something that you determined by observation so it's a very touchy topic because when people start getting their kids diagnosed and they see their own similarities they can love that the clarity or they can resent their child for being a non-purified version of their own self and then we have a lot of you know counter transference going on where moms will secure help for their kids based on their own experience of rejection and denial and they may misrepresent or exaggerate the circumstance because they're feeling unjustly cared for in their youth so an example would be a mom sees the kid struggling with math homework she remembers her struggles with math homework she now knows that this computational capacity is a little bit different autistic people count differently they do math differently they use different regions of the brain we know this so when she's advocating for the child to get you know supports she's going to advocate for the child to get the supports she wished she had to fill her gaps so it's the job of the professional like myself, when I do an intake before a piano student, before I put them on my schedule, I require an intake with a whole family. Mom and dad have to sit there and we talk about their values. We talk about, you know, their sensory issues, their processing styles. What are their careers of choice? What are their jobs that they're stuck in? And you get the whole picture very quickly. And I record all of these and those become really nice uh stories or case studies to present to them after 18 months 18 months ago you said this about your child now what are you saying about your child it's a public service i can i'm capable of providing that so what we, what i think you're saying is that when you're wanting to get help for your child really the whole family needs to be involved in it not just one parent bringing the child to a therapist or a therapist coming to the home and only working directly with one, the child you're concerned with. They really should be working with all the children. And does that necessarily mean that, like say you gave birth to five children, Henny, I know you didn't, but I'm just saying, say you gave birth to five. Almost. <laughs> oh, really? Okay, so could would all of them be autistic or there's the possibility that some of them don't take that gene on? So think of it as the same odds as your first child looking like your husband's side and your second child looking like your mother and the third child looking like your grandmother and the fourth child looking like a combination of your second and third child. Same odds. So it's right. So genetically, however it comes out and, and, the gen, and, and you were able to know the genetics came from your father's side. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, if my father is still alive. He would meet 
a diagnostic criteria in a heartbeat, especially mm -hmm. if he was unsuspecting that that was the form of the purpose of the assessment. Um, and then my grandfather, you can profile him from his writings and how he navigated the war. This is a person who's used innovation and creative genius to survive Auschwitz and more. Oh, fabulous. Yeah. So, um, Survival runs in my blood. Uh, yes, <laughs> very much so. I want to say for the audience and for myself, what is the difference between a savant and an autistic person? Or is that one in the same? Most autistic people are not savants. Um, and then we have savants who, by definition, uh, have an extraordinary ability in something specific without training that emerges from a young age. So that's a very, very specific criteria. Let's say um, your child uh, picked up the xylophone when they were in diapers. That's a prodigious skill set. Mm -hmm. And if you are a disabled person, you unfortunately have to take the savant label because the savant has this extraordinary prodigiousness. However, it's superimposed on a disability. A prodigy is someone who has the same genius capacity. However, they don't have a diagnosed disability. So a prodigy and a savant are the same, except a savant typically implies that they're autistic. Now, I am a diagnosed prodigious savant. Yes. Which is one of everything, pretty much. Because you're incredibly musically talented. I'm gifted in pretty much anything I want to try to figure out or learn. It's already done. I just have to, oh, wow, I'm flying to Rio de Janeiro. I guess I can't learn Spanish. I have to learn Portuguese. So I'm learning Portuguese on the flight. Wow. That amazing. <laughs> I, I I wanted to share my one savant story because I was hoping that our our our, our audience would really really be interested in this. Uh, I I had the the pleasure of uh, having um, the gentleman who wrote the screenplay for Rain Man, Barry Morrow. He uh, was introduced to us, and we all immediately had a wonderful connection. And so when our daughter. Tasha went down to Santa Barbara, the university, being the Jewish mother I am, I don't like her being somewhere where there wouldn't be somebody who could take care of her in a second until I could get there. And he offered to be her, um, what we called college godparent. <laughs> Excellent. I love that. Let's and, make more. Yes. And he said, you know, if anything happens, and he said, and I have one friend that this did happen where there was appendicitis and Barry stood by the kid's side until the parents were able to arrive. I heard that, I said, yes, thank you. That's the relief I need. And he um, gave her all the numbers, his numbers everywhere to find him so she could get cared by him if there was an immediate emergency. Well, on the last day of college when she graduated and we were all finished and we were going down to get all her stuff from her apartment, we went over to Barry's house. He wanted to show us a new film that he had just finished, a really wonderful film. And he said, I just want to tell you this story. And when we came to the house, he told us the story of the gentleman that Rain Man was, was made after was named Kim Peek. Mm -hmm. And as he says in, I have a video of this, as he says, 
he was a mega savant. And he came to his house a year after he received the Oscar for Rain Man. And when Kim Peek came into Barry's house and he saw the statue up on the shelf, he asked if he could hold it. And Barry gave it to him to hold. And he said he stayed with us for two days with his father. And he held it like this, rocking the whole time like a baby. And he would not let go of the statue 24 seven. So when it was time to leave, Barry's father said, I mean, not Barry's father, Kim Peek's father said, you have to give the statue back to Barry. We're leaving now. And Barry said he clearly knew in that moment that he should not take back that statue, that he needed to give that to Kim Peek. Yep. And what had happened was it changed his life. Kim Peek ended up blossoming and going around the world with this statue. And on the day that we were there, here's this little photo of all of us with the statue and Barry and the, wow. and the Oscar and I'm holding, I'm, I'm the Oscar holder there. Yeah. Like I actually won. <laughs> you look prideful. Right. And um, he said he took that and he traveled the world with his father and used that as his tool and came out of himself and spoke to thousands and thousands of people about Savant and what he does. And he would get up and they would have a phone book that he would have looked at the night before in the city. And anyone in the audience would stand up and just say their name. He would tell them their address and their phone number out of thousands and thousands that he'd read only the night before. It was, he would read with both eyes, he said. He'd read both pages like that. Yeah, and, he didn't have a, a corpus callosum. Oh. So each of the brains rewired themselves to work as separate entities. So each hemisphere did the visual processing of a different side of the page. So he was like scanning dub at 2x speed. Well, it's an amazing thing. I don't know very many people like this, but... Um, it ended up giving him such an amazing life that he went around and his last trip before he died, the, um, and, and uh, Barry says in China, they called it the, the gold man or something, <laughs> the statue. And it had been held by close to 1 million people. He said at the time when it came from China, they hadn't given the count up yet. It was 800,000 by then. And then the statue, was given to a special filmmaking place in Utah that honors all films that are made by uh, people that have different challenges. And so it now resides in a place where everyone can see it, honoring the fact that this film really did something to really help awareness and what it did for the actual person who the film it was about. And I just thought what a beautiful thing that the holding of that changed this man's life to be coming and sharing his story around the world. And I, I just always like to share one story. So that's my one story. <laughs> I love the story because these are like untold stories. And when uh, Susan Ranser, we ended up co-authoring this book that we put out, The Perfect Pitch in the Key of Autism. We put that out when she first encountered me. I met her by Googling after I was I went the first time to like a music fundamentals class when I found out that it was uh, 
part of like I could build tuition credits for it I was like you mean I could take a music fundamentals course in community college towards my science major uh, check okay so I went and in the second class in the second week the professor in front of the whole class Henny do you know if you have perfect pitch I'm like uh, mm, uh, mm, uh, I don't know what that means so she said talk to me after class before before I went to her office I went to the you know the computer lab and I googled perfect pitch and I got these descriptors of all the things people with perfect pitch can do and I said wait how's that different than my autism wow so I googled autism and perfect pitch and a chapter from a book came up and it was written by Susan Ranser for Dr. Daniel uh Dr. Trefford's uh book and Kim Peek was of course Dr. Trefford was the one who Barry consulted with for the movie yes I and read Dr. About Trefford it. was the one who diagnosed me as a prodigious savant wow and, and went on to uh to tell me remember there are only one and uh, you are there are only 10 of you in every generation and you are one in 10 congratulations um, so, so that's happy. my gold statue that's beautiful and that you know I've heard about him being mentioned many times when we were talking about because he's the person that you go to for the real diagnosis it was what it sounded like like if you want to be legitimized as a prodigious savant a, a savant a, a prodigy you go to dr trefford and then in his the last decade of his life he set up the trefford center in wisconsin in his hometown in fond du lac and then in that oh, I know fond du lac. yeah he started a preschool to bring in the arts for for these kids bring them together from the whole world into a single preschool right there at a Trefford Center and he would frequent the school every day and catalog their strengths so that they would have these arc like scientific evidence of their gifts as they encounter adulthood so right. he's got catalogs and catalogs of, on the kids and Susan showed me unseen footage of Kim Peek being evaluated by Dr. Treffold, Trefford oh. And it, it was dazzling because I'm sitting there and I'm watching savant after savant after savant that's coming from Dr. Trefford's archives. And I'm like, how am I different? Tell me again, how am I different? I don't understand. Why am I not there? You know, so I started cataloging my own self. This is so wonderful. I, I, I'm sure you're told how many times you're such an amazing, special woman but not only for what you've accomplished for yourself, but for the fact that you're making a difference in helping these, these other people that uh, can reach out to you. I won't ask the question about me being tone deaf and what is perfect pitch, because you just answered it. <laughs> um, you know, tone deafness is a myth. Mm -hmm. That's what my husband says. <laughs> neurologically, yeah. So... Um, I was going to go on, I have, this is my next question, and I want to let our audience know that I'm going to be inviting my husband, David Levitt, in to join us. Hopefully he's listening and he'll tune in in a second. Uh, this is my question that will involve my Hi. husband, David Levitt. Hi, Dave. Well, what a great show. Perfect hit. You're what? on, David, you're on. 
while while reading your book, Perfect Pitch in the Key of Autism, I kept feeling like I was reading about my husband, Dave, <laughs> excuse me, who was identified as a gifted child and taught himself to play piano at 12. As an adult at MIT, he wrote artificial intelligence software to create music. I asked him to join us today so he could share his musical experience. And I'm gonna sort of, you know, I'm gonna really sign pass this over to the two of you to discuss these things right now. I'm gonna sort of sit in the background, but I'll watch our time and, um, and I'll let you know when I should jump in again. So All I right. wanna just introduce everyone to my husband, David Levitt, who they might've met on a previous show. And him and Henny are meeting for the first time today as well. And I've got no music making instruments nearby. So do you want to go into clear. your other room? Oh, do you want to go into your other room or? Would no, you... he's already preparing to administer a perfect pitch test, but that's okay. stereotyping. <laughs> no, I'm not doing any perfect pitch. Well, here, here's a funny thing. I'll just say, do this because it's queued up. I obsessively, okay, I'm not, no. Gail wondered if I'm on the spectrum, but uh, but but I also was identified as a, as gifted. I uh, but uh, but but maybe not. You know, I'm not a music prodigy from f six or anything like that. I'm just very curious. Auditory curiosity is high here. Um, so if I hear my microwave do something like, I anticipated that exact sound you just played. Great. <laughs> And my pitch was perfect. <laughs> so, so, so slightly obsessively, I want to go, or whatever. I want, you know, transcribing stuff and listening to stuff, but uh, is 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 in my blood, and and makes me happy. But re reading your book, so many things connected, and um, I haven't read, you know, I haven't read the whole book, but. I have to ask, have you ever heard of a book called How to Play the Piano Despite Years of Lessons? I mean, I kind of rewrote that book using a different splashier title. It, it's so you so but you by Kennell and Marx, it's you know, it, it basically it, it it's good at describing a lot of people, including me, who are like, God, the last thing I want to do is practice the scales under the Alfred method. Uh. I want to play some music. You know, and so I never had any lessons. And when I learned that there was a way to write down the incredibly fun sounding thing known as ragtime, I sat there very laboriously doing the E-G-B-D-F-A-C-E thing. And then, oh, great. And there's a hundred, you know, teachers who would say, well, your fingering is wrong and you're blah, 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 blah. But to me, it's the most empowering, delightful, fun thing to be able to do a real piece and, uh, or, or even part of one. And, you know, and so every TV theme that came on, you know, whatever, if Perry Mason, I learned all about fat chords from... And all the, you know, wonderful Bernard Harmon half diminished stuff and all of that. Um, so, uh, so, and then, but then if, if people would say, but I felt like such an illiterate dope because yep. I would read something or I would try to read something and it would take a long time. And I would like, well, I'm not doing this again. <laughs> and I would just memorize it. You know, I got a four-year music degree, finished college, went to visit Susan Ranser. And she said, you don't know how to read a single note. I said, no, I don't. But they gave me a college <laughs> music degree. She goes, sit down. 
She puts this book in front of me. It's got alphabet in bold, all caps letters. C, D, E, F, G, G, G. I'm like, okay, within an hour and a half, I was in level three of Alfred. Note reading like nobody's business. And I and I probably should do that. And I've never and I and I have at least one Alfred book. And I was just like, God, this is the worst, most boring music I'll ever read. But um, but but I understand that if I wanted to become a sight reader, I could. And yet I haven't ever set, buckled down and done it. Um, and I have a lot of fun with you know uh, I, you know I could play for the next for the rest of the show, uh, but whatever. Um, but uh, but I do think that. Even for non-autistic people, there's something about, you know, uh, we all know someone who is sort of immunized against learning music by a piano teacher. And, uh, and, and, um, uh, and you know, they managed to take the fun out of it and treat them like there was a nun in some horrible- They don't own music. The music is not proprietary to music educators. It's not proprietary to music therapists. It's not proprietary to the lady who has a Casio in her garage and charges your mom $10 an hour once a Sunday and you walk away with cookies and candy rewards. So no, nobody has the right to ruin music for a, 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 a section of society that requires a music education to unlock their future because they don't want to be, what do you call it, an ignorant dope? <laughs> okay nobody wants to feel that and when nothing else is working out like a kid is not speaking they're keeping him a special ed they're not promoting his iep goals beyond michael will learn the sound of five letters of the alphabet with 85 percent <laughs> accuracy by the end of the school year sub sub footnote michael is 13 <laughs> I love your activism. I think it's a you know as a as as a Nebrew, something that was illegal when my parents married, uh, yeah. twenty six states. I've always had to be an activist. And if you really are curious about the world and love learning, you have to be. So I so I'm just a lot. By the way, one other thing that I think is key actually, because. I don't often feel like a deliberate illiterate dope. I feel like someone who speaks music and doesn't actively uh, read and sometimes, and, and I don't just write it, I write programs that write it. But my mentor, a fellow named Marvin Minsky who invented the field artificial intelligence, ch changed the lives of everyone he encountered in his living room because he would sit down at his keyboard and improvise a fugue. And you start, and, and, and only, and many people only then realize that in box day, that was not an uncommon thing. That the downside of literacy is the incredible dependence that modern classical players have on the, the page. And only in Marvin's living room would Bernie Greenberg improvise a chorale and all of the things that the class. Those are the people who love to make fun of us. Well, so this, these wars have to stop. What we have to remember is that everyone is capable of learning with the exception of legally blind people, okay? Everyone else can make music from a written system of notation and that the written system of notation is so important because it, un it unlocks uh, independent learning skills, self-correction using the ear, and of course, free improvisation using the rules of theory. So when you have a 10-year-old student who's been exposed for a new to a new musical alphabet, because for six weeks we're doing C D E F G, 
And then we take their hand, put it on the G, and now they have to relatively tune themselves to what we call G position. It's G, A, B, C, D, G, A, B, C, D. And they're like, holy mackerel. And they have these moments. And then I just, I pause and I allow them to reflect. And every kid reflects differently. I put out a video, I think I sent it to you, Gail, last week, of a new student who was just introduced to something new on the keyboard, never had a music education trauma story before. So I'm clean slate. You know, this kid's going to be amazingly successful as a musician. But his synesthesia came pouring out and he was describing all the colors and textures of all this new vocabulary that I just introduced him and then he's giving me this finger so that I could not interrupt his flow that's great that's and by the way just to be clear I've never been shamed really I mean I I, I modestly said that I was an, an ignorant dope but everybody says wow you can play that and you never had a lesson and that's you know it's all joy from my point of view but I always but but I could probably unlock a lot more if I if I read the literature more um, you know who does this AI live version without the help of AI is Derek Pavicini's The One in Ten of my generation. And he's uh, this blind savant in the UK. And I attended a session when he was in San Diego a couple of years ago, and there was audience requests. So I asked him to do the Bach prelude in C major in the style of a tango in the key ah. of B flat. In the key of B flat. Uh, you know who else does that very beautifully that we just saw two nights ago is bobby mcferrin exactly and, on the and, same level and he, and he and he invites in the audience and i'm so glad you said that right away to gail that tone deaf is a myth because bobby was saying it there on the stage when people were asking questions how do you do it blah 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 and gail was saying now, I don't, Bobby just did blah, blah, blah. I don't do that. And she had just done it in the same sentence. Oh, yes, she did. I wasn't there and I believe you. <laughs> but, but I but, don't hear any of these things. I don't. Maybe you don't understand the phenomenon of identifying with tone deafness and where did it come from? And who told you repeatedly that oh, you uh, think the worst happy birthday? No, my father told us that there's no musical people in our whole family, so don't even I think. Say it's a training. If you're trained to believe that you're tone deaf, exactly. So how are you appreciating your husband's art? Well, it's an, it's amazing. All we have to do is say, like we're watching something on TV or we went to a movie and we come back home. And you're hearing the little jingle in your in your mind and you think, oh God, I wish I, in my mind, I hear it exactly like it is, but that's where it stays. It doesn't come out any place. David just hears the thing and he sits down at the piano and he says, oh, you just go like this. And then you know that the next note goes this way. And I'm thinking, I don't know what he's talking about, the notes going up and down. And he just plays what he just heard. How do you do that? Okay. I mean, this is a simulation. Use your words to express what your mind is observing at this time. I see a bottle of uh, Gatorade used to give you energy with a red flip top lid. Excellent. David, you go now. I don't know that I'd see anything that different, uh, except that the image froze for a second for some reason. But I'm seeing uh, this, the, the shiny silver gray uh, label 
and the and the circular pat tab and uh and your beautiful purple ring there you go so you provided the qualitative phenomenal phenomenology to gail's objective observations mm. interesting that's called mixed methods in in scientific research so we need more than one perspective to be able to not just say oh i'm going to collect a lot of data and find prevalences so that we could say the number of you know occurrences in ashkenazi jewish families is one in ten of autism so okay fantastic let's publish the but how many no i want to know first i want to know how many and then i want to answer the but why Oh, I I on this topic, I have to say, in terms of descriptions, so there's a bunch of wonderful papers in this book, Machine Models of Music from Mozart to Minsky, um, that I co-edited. It's got, it's got my thesis explaining how I got AI programs to improvise or compose or arrange uh, mostly jazz and classical stuff. But it's also got really wonderful articles by Christopher Longhead Higgins and LeGeron Hiller explaining how people listen how people decide what key something is in, what time signature it's in, and the algorithms that are mostly unarticulated and unconscious, like, oh, the last note is probably the tonic. So when I hear the melody, by the end, I can figure everything out if I just if I just suspend belief. And there's there's a dozen techniques, or what I was saying, and what you know, what Gail was referring to, up down is key. And if you just know, if you just train yourself to know which note is higher than another, and a lot of people have never done that, but once you do that, you're three quarters of the way to figuring out the whole melody. And the other thing, which is common from software and engineering and uh, people, is the uh, relentlessness, or you might say masochism. It's like you can only have 12, 11 wrong notes before you get the right one. Sure. So, or there's one in, one in 88 keys that you're hitting the first time you hear your microwave dinging. What are the odds? Right. And then if you know which one is higher, then that cuts out half of the errors. Yeah. If you don't think it's a leap, then that cuts out the most of the other half. And you start to say, oh, this is this is a stepwise thing. And you play it right the first time after a while. If and somebody nails the note on a keyboard, but then they're out of octave in a different range, would you say that they had perfect pitch? Or well, would you? what would you say? I rarely use the term perfect pitch because I've never trained in it. And, uh, you know, but I'm, uh, I, I have very strong relative pitch. But I, I think if I sang that melody from my microwave, I, I discovered that I actually am singing in the same. In I'm the, singing. Are you listening? You're gonna accompany me. Doobity ba dooba. Doobity ba dooba. Now find it on your doobity buddy with your fingers. So I so so I had to try and I was a little off. So I'm saying I don't have perfect pitch in that sense. I didn't know oh. which one was B flat. Oh, I, I was off, man. I had two hand stamps. <laughs> so um that's what we call the personality test, whether you have perfect pitch, how to test away from the instrument. The first diagnostic criteria is denying that you have it. And why? Because you have this personality that comes with perfect pitch, which is increased. And you've, you've seen the checklist. You've seen how to identify yourself. And in the book, it specifically says that if you keep denying that you have it, it comes from your personality of having unreasonably high expectations on your capacities, which means that 
I suffered from it when I went into a vehicle the first time for driving instruction. I'm like, wait, so why don't I get a driver's license? The way, just because I got in, like, I'm going to learn how to do this immediately. I'll parallel park. I'll stop at the stop signs. I'll stay in the center of the lane. I'll do all of that. Why do I have to? Why is the state forcing me to take six driving instruction classes and submit proof of that payment so that I can get scheduled for a road test? It's such personal insult yeah. to the processing style of the individual who has this gift, who marginalizes themselves because they're not entirely confident that they will be perfect if I wake you up in the middle of the night and pour a bucket of cold water on you and you won't be able to sing me a seat. <laughs> uh, now, I, in my case, I, it's mostly that I haven't tested myself and I'm only just partway through your book. So I, I can tell I'll be a, a confident, uh, a perfect pitcher before I've finished it. But, um, <laughs> but, but let but, me tell but, you a funny story on this AI topic. I, you know, chat GPT is now the latest talk. Everyone is oh, eating questions into it. Yeah, I'm going to get you started. What so is I asked chat GPT. It's an, oh. it's an, it's a AI engine where you can say, write me a renter's agreement uh, and all the legalese for the state of California, zip code 90202, okay? And it will give you, you know, what is up to code. And it's basically, it will generate it um, in a way, it will only be as good as the query. So the more detail you give, the more responsiveness. So I tested ChatGPT two days apart. The day one, I asked if um, if it can give advice to a, a, a millennial mom of a newly diagnosed autistic child in the tone of Dr. Henny. Uh -huh. <laughs> All right. So 50% of it was spot on. Wow. And that means that it's generated, it's a cumulative sum or a median of data from all the content I originated and fed the AI machine in the past 40 years of existence. I've been digitizing and digitizing because I want my spirit to live after my physical body is gone. I dig this stuff. Day two, I post this one and Stanley Krippner comments on my public page, what a brilliant use uh, you are uh, current to the times, what a brilliant use of AI. So I asked ChatGPT, and I can screen share here if the host participant allows it. Um, it says, what are my strengths and disadvantages according to autistic autism researcher, Dr. Henny Cooperstein? No way to fail on that. <laughs> AI generated an entire you know, blog post complete with bullet points and references. And there isn't a single word that I would take offense from that generated response. So mm -hmm. I guess I am secure that I live in the world. I live in the cloud now and <laughs> anyone can use me and my services and get my advice in perpetuity. And I love it. I have to push back for a second though, because I've, I've also seen people who do that and half or all of it was actually a fabrication. And uh, okay, but how much can you recognize as your with trace roots to your original content? Well, I don't know. You so you have a lot of material up online already that it was referring to, and maybe this physicist, you know, it was asking how he met his wife, and that was not public anywhere, so it made something up. 
Correct. So they had it fully never actually attended. And so the response will tell you the fidelity of your efforts to digitize your point of view and your lifestyle choices. So um it's it's just a beautiful way to exist in another you know, I, I have to tell you, Minsky would be proud of you. I totally identify with you. I when I when I when I go back and 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 correct something in an old Facebook post, I know it's because I want to be immortal and I want it a little more accurate. Um, so so we're on the same page on all of that. I have to say, I never thought of either of these things until I I didn't even know I was going to ever do a podcast. So I was only doing this podcast because some publisher told me you needed a social media site. And I never even watched a podcast, but after you're my, you'll be my 43rd, I think, 42nd or 43rd show. And as I told you, it has a life of its own, but I realized at one point, I said, wait a minute, I'll be dead and gone. But if I ever have grandchildren or anyone that was actually interested, if they watch these, these shows will always be there. And the information, whether we're talking about life after death or autism, or uh, remote viewing, all of this will always be there. And it gave me a feeling like, wow, it's a new way of recording your life to leave for the people in the future. Not that I'm making some big difference, but whatever little bits that I'm doing, even if it's just one person watching this particular show and it helps their autistic friend or family, we've done a good job. I don't consider that we have to reach thousands and thousands. Whatever we reach is still good work. So I, I, I mean, just want to I, say. I've reached thousands and thousands, and I do think I've done good work. And I aimed for 2020 to retire because physically I couldn't keep up the laborious lifestyle that I put myself out for. And because I have other co-occurring health conditions, I knew I had to be reasonable um, because I, I have progressive uh, muscular dystrophy. So for me, uh, preparing in advance, I in in COVID, I started, uh, I discovered the club, I got invited to the clubhouse app back when it was just content developers and it was by specific invite and only for iPhone users. So it was a niche of a niche of a niche. And I got in and I met MIT people. I met people from around the world who started coming into my group. And in my group, I was 24 seven using the phone, following along my life and narrating my experience. And then people would do the same and say, oh, Dr. Henny, I'm on the floor right now and I am drunk on an entire bottle of whiskey. It's empty. How can I convince myself to stand up from the floor? So there was this mutual peer support and um, a lot of junkies joined my club as well as physicists and MIT tech people. So it was fantastic, fantastic fun. A lot There's a lot of recordings. And what I wanted to bring out was that the name of the club was called Existential Erotica. Whoa. <laughs> People wanted to know how to stimulate motivational molecules to perpetuate their own existence. That sounds fantastic. Why not? Uh, well, oh, I... Yeah. <laughs> I want to say right now we're at our one hour point and I, I don't want to tire you out too much, but I always like to say here, is there anything else, whether it's another five minutes, 10 minutes, whatever you want that you'd like to share with the audience about your work or about perfect pitch or about how to find you or I see you're retiring. 
But, um, uh, and David, if there's anything else you'd like to share, this is our point to decide what we'd love to share at the end here. I, I want to share a little bit more of a personal side with, because I'm good on time. So Okay, so we'll, we're happy to go as long as you like. Yeah, my kids are uniquely gifted as well. And definitely my second child, he's my only boy. He showed very prodigious skill sets for electrical wiring from a very young age and architectural structures. And he created, I, we took him in for Manhattan for an appointment. And when we came home, he sat for eight and a half hours in his room. I brought him food to the room. Never once did he go to the bathroom. He uh, replicated the Empire State Building with Lego. Mm -hmm. photographic memory from just passing on West 34th Street. Mm -hmm. And then he put little uh, lights inside and he had connected them to a transformer. And even not only was every floor lit a different color, but the antenna was blinking. So, I mean, I took some pic, I tried to take some pictures. I still have some pictures from it, but he is now married. Uh, he's newlywed. He got married in November and where does this take him? He is a, an entrepreneur. Like I'm, you know, I was a serial entrepreneur from a very young age. He also, he runs a, like an audio, stereo audio shop, but it, uh, um, he basically, um, he puts in all the like, he like pimps out people's rides upon request. Oh, you want purple lights here? You want this to do that? You want this to automatically fly? No problem. You got it. He fulfills people's dreams and fantasies in their own vehicles. Wow. And 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 he he puts out these Instagram clips of like, hey, this today we did this and we pimped out this person's ride. And I'm like, shit, that's my son. His gifts are so crazy. It's out there and I've nurtured it. Um, you know, so as far as like my research. When I went through my divorce, it was because, you know, I was in a very strike, like small, isolated group of society where um, old fashioned values were the most important and seeking help from the outsiders or marking yourself as a disabled person would have led you to the gas chambers before the normal people. So when I was recommended by the schools to take my kids for assessments and I did, and they got their diagnosis, my ex flipped out because it was so taboo in that culture. So of course I had to become the perpetrator. So my, my, my greatest sin against my children was getting them diagnosed, getting them an IEP and, and getting the speech therapy organized. And shortly thereafter, I was removed from the home with police and NYPD, and I was alienated from my children, taken away the privilege of raising them. And my first thought in that moment where, you know, I'm homeless, my, my nursing baby's inside the house, I'm stressing out about my breast milk starting to dry up and didn't even concern myself of where I'm going to sleep tonight. I ended up laying down on the bench in the park near the house my decision at that time was like, okay, it's already seven o'clock in the morning. Does he know that this kid likes 
his snack this way and this kid likes the snack that way and this kid wants their hair made this way and this one will only let you touch her hair if you use the detangle spray and on and on and on and then I'm like oh my god it's 10 to 8 does he know that the first bus comes 10 after 8 and after that morning I set out to 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 psychologically prank myself and say all right so I was born into this world apparently we all have a purpose I thought my purpose was parenting and mothering and giving my, you know, kids a chance to do get bigger, badder than me and more successful. But apparently uh, I'm not good enough for that privilege. So what am I good for? And when I decided that I was going to print out resumes of people I admired out in the mean big world, you know, America, um, I printed out some resumes like uh, Bill Gates. And I started following exactly what their achievements on their resumes were. Person worked in Starbucks, got myself a starter job. Person got an associate's degree in this and then did a free complete flip for their bachelor's. I'm going to go become interdisciplinary. And that's what I did. And my research or the content I'm putting out is specifically to make a better world, a more adjusted world where if you're looking for something, there's a big chance that I have written about it or created a real or a funny TikTok about it. And on all of the platforms, I exist and that I exist in different flavors on each platform. And my dream is that my kids will find me through the internet when when they're ready. Right now, they don't, they're just describing that they're inability to feel ready to have communication with me even though half are married and half are not so it's really um you know asking myself what is something I can produce that can leave that I can leave a legacy behind if it's not children and it basically my research became my babies and every study that got published I'm like yes I mothered that you know I could say I authored that but no I mothered that I nurtured this research and got it out there and one I know that the thousands of people who read my research one of my studies went scientifically viral and it was cited more than a thousand times around the world it's impacted legislation for me this is the stuff that I chased Stanley Krippner because I wanted to see what happens when you're a per uncommon person in a scientifically rigorous field where you have the KGB, the CIA, everyone knocking on your door in the 50s and 60s, accusing you of espionage because you're exploring LSD studies and on and on. You know, I was in the right time to follow him because as a mentor, because he ultimately was let go from Saybrook University, where I was a doctoral student right two weeks before he was supposed to be emeritus status and that was 42 years of teaching yes. so those are the people you want to follow those are the trendsetters how much can you enrage society from the <laughs> truths you just objectively keep reporting from the field i kind of want to applaud thank you i, I felt the same way <laughs> i want to be like him when i grow up Stanley, we were at his 90th birthday. Yep. And, and I'm going to live till 90, even though I don't have Viking ancestry. Um, and I have the one in 10 chance of being a carcass before I turn 50. But oh, well. 
I'll, I'll plug along and well, you're, I think you're, 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 you've proven you're already immortal. Have you happen to see a movie called Chappie by the, the, by the geniuses who made District 9? So at the end, when Dev Patel uploads himself into a robot, that's you. I lived in the Matrix when I was an infant. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's insert cartridge and learn Hungarian. Charm your grandmother. I charmed my grandmother. Are you hung Hungarian? My, my, my thighs would say yes. <laughs> the, the reason I'm asking is because the family members I'm, I'm speaking about are, come from Hungarian descent. <laughs> I, Stanley is a, he's a, a, a blessing, a, I cannot tell you how many people and doors have opened from Stan, I'm, Stanley, I, I have pages I wrote in his book on suicide. He had a book about Rolling Thunder. And I said, well, I, I don't have a neg I have a negative thing to say. And this is a spiritual man that everyone adored. So I don't think you want to hear my thoughts about him being a dirty old man. He said, oh, no, I want that in my book. You bet so I want that in my book. <laughs> Give me all the sides to this. So I did. And he put it in there. But he was the first person to take my writings and put it in his books. And I was so honored. I, I'm just... He's given me so much validation. He's, I don't know what to say, but I, I, I only live 45 minutes away from where he lives. So we got to see him a bunches in between, but, um, and we need to go pay him a visit. Are you in California also? I'm in San Diego and I'm looking at um, the introduction where he introduced uh, me to you. And he just in Stanley style wrote one sentence and it was, uh, this is my student, Henny, who uh, is autistic and has the view that autism is just another way to another way of being and not the disability people talk about. And mm -hmm. and and that's 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 what he's putting in his memoir. He's putting, you know, he called when when I went uh, in to Brazil uh, with him. When he was there, he goes every year, almost every year to Brazil. He's been there more than 30 times. And when I found out in October of 2019 that he, I'm sorry, I'm out of the office, I'm in Brazil. I'm like, excuse me, may I join you? Where should I arrive? And there I was the next day with three suitcases and I, I stayed for three weeks and he made sure that I've encountered over 6,500 families touched by listening to what he put me up on panels every single day in different cities. I got to eat the best sushi of my life. Um, I got to meet Japanese Brazilians. Um, and, and I interviewed a, 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 a chief of an indigenous Amazonian tribe about his altered experiences with, you know, shamanism and substances. And Ah, I came back and I couldn't eat or drink American food or water for like three weeks. I was like, everything tasted like cotton balls. Um, it was just, <laughs> he's just a wonderful role model for people who need to be uh, recognized and understood from another perspective because they don't believe in their own greatness. And in Brazil, he introduced me as uh, a student because at the time I was just you know, going through the coursework in the PhD program. And he said, and she is writing a dissertation that I predict will one day be historic. 
And then when I did the editing and I paid him a little bit to review my, you know, my dissertation to make sure he was, he gave me critical feedback. Um, don't use the word innate. Don't use the word instinct. Use the word potential. Um, and, and coming from his roots of like special education and all of the things that he's done in his life, he helped shape it so that I too understood my writing. You know, we normalized it so that the naysayers would not be able to do anything other than look at it as self-identified novel research. And I called it novel because everyone has told me that it, it was an innovation and I'll, I'll stand by it. And now I have Stanley vouching for me and introducing me to people like you, Gail, where I'm like, all right, I'm not concerned. There will be no problem because we're going to be on the same page with everything and we're just going to enhance each other's pages with colorful markings. That's all. It, it's, it, I'm just saying it's a beautiful thing because I, 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 I never know what's going to happen on these shows, but it always seems like a wonderful connection to another, another spirit. And I really, that's why sometimes I say, I hope that my listeners are getting as much out of this as I am, you know? <laughs> you know, the graphic for this uh, blog post where I asked GPT, what are my strengths and disadvantages according to Dr. Henney? The mm -hmm. picture that I have attached to it is like mellow faded colors of like vintage photos and a green uh, little banner with red words that says, I am AI, which is a palindrome. Uh... And I hope people will get it because right now it's taken off and like a couple of hundred people responded yesterday to my LinkedIn post, which is crazy. And I think the picture is doing it. So we must play with algorithms and be nice with them because they can <laughs> enhance our existence. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I love, I love algorithms and I love um, uh, how I can predict uh, if content will be viral or not. And I coach uh, autistic kids to dominate their platforms yeah. and to monetize from YouTube. And um, yeah, on Tuesday, I teach uh, Trending Tuesdays. How to trend. Give me a Tuesday. So I just have to ask because I'm a very emotional person. So I get very, I get always, I'm always crying. I've already cried twice listening to you here. I just have to know your children are all adults now. Um, my third just turned 18 in January. So last month, and then my fourth, she's a teenager still. I mean, they both are, but, um, yeah. So my youngest child, she didn't see me or know me in any parent capacity since she was a nursing infant. So I have to a little bit, you know, give her the, the leeway to exist or conduct herself in the way that she was raised, which was pretty much raised by my abusers. Um, mm -hmm. uh, my third child has not been able to navigate this in a healthy way. And she's very um, challenged by this destruction of her upbringing. Um, my oldest child is pretty much the personality of my ex-husband which means I don't necessarily need to have a relationship there mm -hmm. um uh, I did get a random text message uh three or four years ago this may be random but do you still have your gallbladder 
It's good that I still exist. Otherwise, she could ask Chat GPT. Did Dr. Henny have her gallbladder taken out at any point in her life? And Listen, I, at 17, I found out that my mother wasn't my mother and, and that my mother was my father's girlfriend and they had been together for 20 years or something. So he was leaving his dual life. But his family were religious Jews that, you know, had the milk and flashic in the, you know, oh. the kosher house, but they were not orthodox. My grandfather worked on Saturdays because his whole ethics was just to, you must work as much as you can. And um, so I grew up and found out later about all these, you know, other brothers and sisters that are all existing half and one sister that's actually full. And I too do not have a positive experience like you're experiencing. <laughs> and I always felt like, well, I'm out here, I'm open. I'm, But it took me years to get through that trauma of being attached to people who are not in my life, but that but we all came out of the same crotch of the same woman. Oh well, that doesn't guarantee you anything. No. <laughs> and and, uh, and I, I never felt right in my own family that raised me. And I think there was some prejudiceness because my mother was actually a Catholic. No, he could And so exactly the real shiksha, the the shiksha shiksha all the way. We'd be on the boardwalk in Coney Island visiting my great aunt Ida, and all I'd hear from the ladies on the board, oh shiksa, oh yeah, shiksa. And I was blonde with a pointy nose. Not only was she a shiksa, but you're the bastard child of a shiksa who is a mistress to somebody who should have had babies with only his wedded wife. Exactly. Got it. So I just want to say that's where my heart goes out to you, and that there's compassion and understanding because I know what it is to be in those different positions I always imagined my mother really wanted me and and that's why but she gave me away at birth you know and la 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 it turned out no she never wanted me you know <laughs> so these she were was she was instructed to spare you from the upbringing of being a bastard child to a slut mistress not only that they registered in the hospital I have a fake birth certificate because she registered as my father's wife name instead of hers so that I would be born legitimate. <laughs> so how does this bring me back to me about to deliver my first child? I'm a teenager still. Yes. Uh, I didn't have any instruction. I was that kid who didn't know why they were telling me to undress. Like, what the heck does that have anything to do with going to the nursery and looking through the window? And that's my baby. Right wasn't computing and they kept reiterating uh you know you didn't change into a gown now we gave away the last labor delivery room it's a 10 minute wait so I said oh I'm just gonna pace here and I was using the handrails to like work off what felt like you know stomach upset and <laughs> I'm just bending over and I'm like there you go okay it passed and then they said well, seeing that you're about to give birth anyway, why don't you just kill time by filling out the birth certificate form? So I'm filling it out and your name, Henny, last name, Cooperstein, mother's maiden name, Rivka Weiss. The birth certificate came in the mail as Victor Cooperstein and Rivka Weiss having a baby girl. Oh, so they made the error, the, the, 
I was not supposed to put my out. mother's maiden name. I was supposed to put my maiden name as though I'm already a mother. Ugh. So I had no idea how to fill out a birth certificate form because I haven't identified as a mother yet. And when it asked for mother's maiden name, I put my mother's maiden name. But then what's your husband's name? With Victor Cooperstein. So, all right, Mazel tov, they had an incestual child. Fantastic. <laughs> then I had to take, um, I had to get a newborn Cooperstein renamed after she had her kiddish with her name naming ceremony. I had to go back to the registrar and insert first name or given name, which is very typical of Hasidic traumas, we have, we wait, and then we have to go back and engage with the government to get this name change done, which I went to go do. And they said, you don't have proof of ID that you're Rifka Weiss. You can't make changes to this birth certificate. <laughs> it got worse and got worse. I, I did write up that story in my book manuscript of, you know, future to be published story of Henny. And uh, basically it took uh, three and a half months the way that the hospital reconciled with this request was they asked me to come repeatedly to the hospital to in the hopes of aligning the stars where the doctor who delivered is there on the same shift as the nurse who did the APGAR score as the same shift as the pediatrician who signed off on taking the baby to the nursery from the labor and delivery room to sign uh, at the registrar with notarizing that they were all present at the birth and that it was indeed their patient, Henny Cooperstein, and not Rifka Wise, who had delivered this girl. Uh, so I have that letter in my archives. It's a good <laughs> I have to say, these are the two most, most crazy, incorrect, fraudulent birth certificates I've ever heard of in my life. <laughs> You're, what are the odds that you're surrounding yourself with them, David? <laughs> How many of us are there out there with the, with the birth certificates? Meshuganamisis. Right. <laughs> There's probably plenty of Jews who saved their lives by writing some other name on their birth certificate. Yeah, like I'm not good enough to call myself uh, Elon Musk, am I? <laughs> Rebrand. How many... Um, how many Actually, how many black-looking people were born to Jewish mothers? Who... Well, I have a Jewish father, actually. Yeah, and that's your problem. <laughs> oh, that's right. your problem. I'm, oh, I'm, yeah. I'm a Schwarzer and a Shiksa. I mean, you, you, you're allowed to marry a Shiksa, and your non-Schwarzer family is going to have to accept that. Could, there's always a way to win, David. Always a way. From a whole community of Nebrews, we we just had a memorial for one of us. Uh, Nebrews. Yes, yes. Excellent. A, black woman, a brilliant black woman named Elaine Jones who married a Jewish doctor uh, named George Kaufman, and my mother married a brilliant uh, Jew as well. And uh, but you know, when I was as I started your book, and you each of you and the, your co-author describe yourself as I knew from an early age I was weird, and that was a gift to me, right? The fact that the, the the fact that if I was going to pretend being interracial didn't make me different from 99% of people, I was going to be in a fantasy. No, being different is real. And you know what? It's pretty darn good. Yeah, it's pretty darn good. I have a relationship with an individual who is a refugee from Palestine. He unfortunately came out of the crotch on the wrong side of the bank. <laughs> and uh, 
His name is Saeed, and um, he is now currently, you know, building a tourism business in Kazakhstan. <laughs> and he has uh, two children in Lebanon, uh, you know, and he has a, a young girl now that is in Kazakhstan with a Kazakh woman. And basically, he and I, what we get along and we bond with the stories of oppression where when we were raised, we he says, I was the boy who was coaxed with soda cans at the mosque where we went every single day to go out and kick around the soccer ball. So we went to the mosque because we knew we'd get to play soccer. And then the, if there was a demonstration downtown or an Israeli soldier was shot and killed, the boys were called in for the footage of being shown as throwing rocks. So he grew up around that propaganda. And I grew up around the opposite propaganda where, you know, the way that we've conducted ourselves in New York City is incredibly traceable as criminal and racketeering, trading of black votes, um, burying, you know, sexual abuse under the rug because there is a prohibition of tattletaling. So if you cooperate with the police or if you press charges on behalf of your child, uh, you get ostracized. So I, 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 to me, it basically led to this real, like I wanted to rebel against this and I wanted to do it with class in a way that's relatable by the majority so that I should never look like I'm telling these tales to vilify this community, but I'm telling it so that we could see what our ways out is and it's you know learning from people like Saeed and learning from people who uh have you know an accidental uh biracial identity that wasn't their choice and then they have to grow up with certain expectations and present themselves in certain ways realizing masking is not happening mm -hmm. and that you don't want to mask and we know that autistic people express these greatest social traumas which is I'm autistic, for heaven's sakes, why can't I just be? And why, but the problem is in the last 15 years, 20 years, we've created this bubble, this shield around the autistic youth and they're not equipped for adulthood. They can't be self-sufficient and independent and live alone because they were led to believe in their little incubator of special ed that if we go to Target, we're allowed to tell them to turn down the music because one customer is autistic. Mm. And that has not worked for me in my life. No one has ever, you know, split the seas for me. So I had to be the magician. You know, I started taking the conductor's baton and showing up and saying, oh, by the way, remember that senator, the congressman last week that was on the news? where he was uh, had to participate in a debate and there was no ramp for his wheelchair. So, oh yeah, it was on public news and it went everywhere viral. He had to drag his, haul his body from the wheelchair onto the stage and drag himself by the pants legs until he was helped to sit up on the chair. And then he pretended he was a congressman and part of the debate. Yeah. But some people aired the footage of what they made him do and he very nonchalantly and as casual as I would have handled it, because I also use a wheelchair now, so I would have handled it in the exact same way. He turned it into a teaching opportunity. He said, hey, listen, I'm a congressman. 
I was invited to this debate. I was promised $120,000 donations for my campaign, for my re-election. What should I do now, cry like a baby? No, my job is to get my ass up on that debate stage. If you guys find it uncomfortable to watch that footage that was leaked, you can decide amongst your own what you shall do about it for the future generations. But I'm gonna show up, I will continue to show up authentically and creating discomfort is the first wave of change. You're here, you're, you're obviously very gifted at showing up. Just showing up here, so, queer, proud and loud and proud, whatever, whatever the mantra is. Showing up and doing amazing work. Yeah, behaving, uh, um, you know, in, in autism treatments and therapies, you know, they call our behaviors maladaptive. So then they give us conversion therapy, you right. know, to normalize us, um, which is branded as ABA therapy, applied behavior analysis. And I was the first person who published uh, evidence of harms uh, of these very popular interventions. And that's the study that went viral. And Laws in, in South Africa and Australia and Dominican Republic already make it inaccessible to people. And now if you are a millennial mom of a newly diagnosed child and you walk out of an expert's office and you they're saying ABA therapy and you Google it because that's the culture of the millennial mom, yeah. they will not be able to find an ABA therapist for 60 pages deep of their search requests of their geographic area. But for the first 60 page results, there will see, uh, they will see uh, narrative and research from the autistic people describing what ABA therapy did for them and the harms of ABA therapy per the current research. And I know I tackled a huge $67 trillion annual industry because three months after I published that study, the behaviorists of four different state universities of four different states took an entire semester off to write a critique about my research to be published hurriedly. And it got my name in the title. So is that old school? Yeah. Is that new school? evaluating Cooperstein's claims. Oh, so important to take all this grant funding and time off from a semester just to, to, to evaluate Cooperstein's claims. And that's been going on for years now. So it's hilarious. So now I'm the proud owner of misbehaviorism.com. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Misbehaviorism. And we do a pageant. Uh, basically the winner of whoever puts the hashtag with their reels or on any platform. If you use the hashtag, the most likes on your platform is the winner of the pageant title until the next person wins. Wow. So what, so it doesn't sound to me like you're slowing down and retiring, like you say. <laughs> <laughs> no, it just means that I now always have a weapon at hand. And do you um, do you take on any? So are you taking on any new children, or are you not? I started three new kids last week. Um, uh, one, uh, two of them AACs, teaching them how to communicate with the letter boards. Uh huh. Okay. Do we're gonna do a lesson today? Do you want our lesson to be about uh, uh, jewelry or printing? Hi. 
and then they stab the J or the P, and then I just launch onto my lesson. I have a curriculum, it guarantees outcomes. All of the students who are non-speaking who come to me with the letter boards for the lessons within 45 lessons, often administered twice a week, they they age out of my curriculum and then I transition them into piano and that unlocks the 10 fingers. And then in high school, I transition them to the QWERTY keyboard so they can type with 10 fingers. The name of the book, David, is my typing book, Hurdy Gurdy QWERTY. <laughs> and then they go to college and they live independently with assistance, with supports. And they're, uh, you know, I have a, a student in France who has taken piano with me for so many years. He lives independently in the dorm now with an aide and he is second year law student in France. Right, this is the reason, this is, you are the mother of more than four children. Thank you. you Thank four you. children grandchildren. You brought these into the world, but now you have thousands of children that you've, you're birthing from their autism to becoming functioning in the world that their mother might not have been able to guide them through like you are. So you to really- take, To take delight in their existence, really. What does adult, what's, what's the life of the aging autistic? Nobody has investigated what our quality of life is in adulthood. We all have co-occurring diseases. We all have neuromuscular issues and, and visual, visual processing, auditory processing. How are these people going to live if you've situated them already into adulthood and mom and dad die? then what happens? That's right. my area of interest now because I'm steeped in this world where I'm being forced to uh, either present as fully functional or be threatened with conservatorship and placed in a nursing home because they, yeah, that's happening repeatedly. So actually in December, I became a very strong advocate for advanced care, advanced planning. And I help people get their post signed, which is a, you know, an advanced directive. Do you want a tube down your throat? Do you don't want a tube down your throat? Either way, I'm going to give you the language for taking control of your medical decisions. And we get it signed. And mine was signed in December. And now my health plan transitioned me to palliative care because I've become resistant to all of their treatment recommendations. Uh, yeah, I don't want your CPAP machine anymore. Right. Yeah, I'd like to just gasp and have my last breath in my home. Mm -hmm. And I want to ask you every recommendation you make, is that in line with my palliative care wishes of comfort rather than rehabilitation? I learned from the ABA world that their focus is to rehabilitate an autistic person who is primarily seen as deficient. And it didn't work for me. So it didn't work for my kids. It made one of my kids violent and was uh, a five-year-old who was slitting her, her wrists at, you know, early dawn before I was waking up. So that wasn't going to happen. Uh, whatever started at the same time as that behavior started, I terminated it, which was the ABA therapy. And I knew one day I was going to write about it. It took me a decade, but I became, you know, qualified to, to conduct research. And here I am. It will live. Dave, 
We've got an amazing guest here today. It really is. You're it's you're you're on the par with, with and, and it's so important and educational to you know Temple Grandin, that fellow who wrote "Look Me in the Eye." These people are opening our eyes to 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 to, to this wonderful reality. And I'll I'll tell you frankly, if anyone said I was on the spectrum, I'd consider it a compliment and an honor because I'm your peer. That's right. We got to find peer support and we need to exist in communities, virtual or artificially. Uh, however we connect, we have to stay connected because this is our life's blood. This is our culture. We share our common language. We appreciate the same jokes. And we think the DSM is sacred text that has to be abolished. So join the rebellion. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I didn't want you to think David only has his little electronic keyboard back there in our house he has a beautiful kawaii grand piano and when he uh -huh. plays, it fills the whole place with music so i wouldn't have thought that that was all he exists upon i mean that's that's not even one category of nutrition mm -hmm. also i'm a vocalist and i was at, i was singing with bobby mcferrin the other night and yes yeah, i guess here's here's one one tiny other thing because as because it relates to the shame thing. The reason I am good at music is that I'm not afraid to make a fool of myself and I'm not afraid to sing a wrong note or to sound silly. I'm more interested in hearing whether the sound I'm making is the sound I'm, I just heard. And people are so, they call it good socialization, but thank heaven autistic people don't have it because being afraid to follow your curiosity is why so many people are so stupid. Don't 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 judge me for what's happening on the piano. Find a music theory label to to name that chord. It, the burden is on the listener to make sense of it. <laughs> B major ninth. <laughs> There's a ninth in there, absolutely. <laughs> I heard it. <laughs> I, I know that. I have on my website, it's really eclectic collection of links. It's a very immense website, obviously. So people who describe going through my website or my YouTube videos, they call it going down a rabbit hole of delight. Um, Would you mind, choice. even though we will have your website on our description, would you mind saying your website for any of the people who might just be listening on Skype or some other channel other than YouTube? And they might be saying, quick, write down this website. So could you just share that with us? Quick, Google my name. Just kidding. It's hennyk.com. And that's the main landing space for all of my other work that's branched out from there, my nonprofit work. But if you go to hennyk.com, it does promote the piano lessons first. And on the side where there's a service, a menu of services, I have the last one is buy sheet music. So I sell my sheet music, uh, then comes composing, and then comes music improvisation. And then we come back up to the piano, older adults, uh, consulting. And in the, in the music improvisation page, you can see vi videos of me from more than a decade ago when I first sat down to make music with others. I did not know that the keys on the piano had names. So there is footage from before my indoctrination of a formal music education. Yeah. Well, I think we should wind ourselves up. Are we good? Are, do we feel good here with our 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 our, our offering? Another amazing everyone? show, Gail. You, I mean, you're woof, out of the park. I I, I can't <laughs> wait. Stanley watches every one of my shows. 
So I'm really hoping that, um, uh, you know, we'll get feedback as soon as he watches this one. So I'm always thrilled, I, but I always try to send him a link, you know, but he's always on top of it because he's an amazing man. So I want to thank you, Stanley, if you're listening, how much we enjoyed having Henny here today and what a pleasure it was to meet her. So thank you for that. Uh, I'll teach you the letter L and then yes. shoot it forward. And that's in sign language. It's later. Oh, got it. I, I, just, I just learned this. Later. I think was this. Thank you. You don't want to cover your mouth when you're thanking someone oh. because in Italian, it could be profanity. Oh. So, so how would you sign thank you? A little lower. Ah, yeah. Okay. Like my whole face thanks you. Got it. Got it. I've been getting those from our family member and I, 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 and I just go back. Um, and, and I've got to the point now where uh, he lets me hug him. And when he does, he takes the back of his little hand and rubs it like this on my back. And I cannot tell you what soothing touch that is. It's, and it feels very special to know that we could reach each other. So I want to thank everyone here today. I want to remind our listeners to subscribe, like, comment. If you have any questions, put them in. <laughs> and uh, I want to thank my family who puts up the show for me every two weeks. And thank Henny for spending this time with us. And we all hope you have a wonderful, wonderful week. And remember, share your stories because stories can heal. Bye. Bye, guys. Thank you.